Oh, right. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast <laughs> to make life suck less. I'm laughing because, A, I forgot I was doing the intro, and B, Lisa is somehow swaddled in like a blanket tent sleeping bag situation. Uh, it's really beautiful. And uh, anyway, if you're joining us for the first time, this is the podcast where we read and review popular self-help books each week. We dig into the must-knows, the never-forgets, the upsides, the downsides, the dark bits, the light bits, and also life's not a dichotomy. So don't take all of this with a grain of salt. So if you love what you're hearing, buy the book and support the author. If you don't love what you're hearing, you know, vote with your money or don't. That's what we would say. So Lisa, we're going to dive right in. Welcome all new listeners. Welcome back. Longtime loyal listeners, or like as we like to call them, our this one's for you, baby. Oh, and if you are one of the wonderful new listeners who has found this podcast during the pandemic and you want to, to rate, subscribe, and review, we say, What a brilliant idea! Thank you so much. That will help other people find our show as well. It'll get the attention of the, the, the one everyone's after that old algorithm, that sexy beast. So we're, we're going to dive in. Lisa, what do you have for us today? Today I have The Drama of the Gifted Child, The Search for the True Self by Alice Miller. <laughs> you just look like a swaddled baby. Well, I have to tell you, it's really fucking hot in here. <laughs> and I do think this blanket is fucking with my Wi-Fi. So we'll see how this goes. <laughs> we'll see how this goes. Oh, boy. Okay. So this book was first published in 1996, but I'm reading a 2007 publication. It's been reprinted many times. The book prices are uh, Kindle $10.99, hardcover $16.99, paperback $8.99, and Audible $17.56 or one credit. And it's narrated by Suzanne Torin. It's a scant 133 pages, which may be why I have read it. Hello. I, listen, what is the thing that actors say? Like two for you, one for me. That's how I feel like we approach our self-help books is it's like two for you guys and one quick short one for me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about this amazing author. So this is from Wiki. Um, Alice Miller, who lived from 1923 to 2010, was a Polish-Swiss psychologist, psychoanalyst, and philosopher of Jewish origin who is noted for her books on parental child abuse translated into several languages. She was also a noted public intellectual. Her book, The Drama of the Gifted Child, caused a sensation and became an international bestseller upon the English publication in 1981. Her views on the consequences of child abuse also became highly influential. In her book, she departed from psychoanalysis, charging it with being similar to the poisonous pedagogies. In 1953, she gained her doctorate in philosophy, psychology, and sociology. Between 1953 and 1960, she studied psychoanalysis and practiced it between 1960 and 1980 in Zurich. Here's where this gets really 
interesting. In 1980, after having worked as a psychoanalyst and an analyst trainer for 20 years, she, quote, stopped practicing and teaching psychoanalysts in order to explore childhood systematically, end quote. She became critical of both Freud and Carl Jung. Her first three books originated from research she took upon herself as a response to what she felt were major blind spots in her field. However, mm -hmm, by the time her fourth book was published, she no longer believed that psychoanalysis was viable in any respect. I'm so glad that you're saying this because as you were talking about the time period she was practicing in and the areas of the world she was practicing in, I was getting so nervous because I was like, this just sounds problematic from what I know about psychoanalysis and its early roots. Yeah, I know. It's it, it, it's her, her story is amazing. Just wait. Are you ready for this? So in 1985, she wrote about the research from her time as a psychoanalyst, quote, for 20 years, I observed people denying their childhood traumas, idealizing their parents and resisting the truth about their childhood by any means, end quote. Wow. In April 1987, she announced in an interview with the German magazine Psychologie Rut, which is psychology today, her rejection of psychoanalysis. The following year, she canceled her memberships with both the Swiss Psychoanalytic Society and the International Psychoanalytic Association because she felt that psychoanalytic theory and practice had made it impossible for former victims of child abuse to recognize the violations inflicted upon them and to resolve the consequences of the abuse as they, quote, remained in the old tradition of blaming the child and protecting the parents, end quote. Oh, my God. I I cannot imagine what a massive... What a massive shift this must must have been in her life and realization and how horrifying that must be that you've like spent yeah. your entire life yeah. studying and teaching this stuff. And it reminds me of Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, where she was like, sometimes once you've realized something, you can't unsee it. Yes. And you literally have to like burn your whole life down. Yeah. I just also imagine at that time a female, um, an older female at that, because at that time she was in her 60s. Mm. making such a bold statement about such a, a, a lengthy like institution, you know, like a, a yes. solidified institution. So yes. between 2005 and her death in 2010, she answered hundreds of readers' le- letters on her website where there are also published articles, flyers, and interviews in three languages. Days before her death, she wrote, these letters will stay as an important witness also after my death under my copyright. She died on April 14, 2010, at the age of 87 in her home by suicide after severe illness and diagnosis of advanced stage pancreatic cancer. So her website has these letters and offers a ton of other information, as well as displays all of her original artwork. And it'll be in show notes, but it's alice-miller.com. So the book is organized into three parts. Part one, the drama of the gifted child and how we became psychotherapists. Part two, depression and grandiosity, two related forms of denial. And part three, the vicious circle of contempt and also an afterward. There's also a work cited, appendix and index in the book. So each part has multiple smaller sections and subsections, but I'm just covering the parts as a whole. And overall, this book is for psychotherapists, and it was written after she'd left the field. My second therapist recommended this to me like (laughs) nine years ago, and I bought it then, but I didn't get past like the first 10 pages when I picked it up. (laughs) 
Oh, why not? Well, one, it's like translated from German, I think. So it doesn't flow in English always. So it's an it's an all caps. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. That's not a good stereotype. No. Um, and two, it's primarily intended for psychotherapists. So I've been in therapy long enough now that I can absolutely understand what she's saying. So I don't think this yeah. is for a lay person, but so I hope that this overview is enough to get the basic ideas across or encourage someone who wants to learn more to buy the book or visit her website and read, read the letters. Part one, the drama of the gifted child and how we became psychotherapists. So here's a big quote from her and it's how it starts the book. <clears throat> Experience has taught us that we have only one enduring weapon in our struggle against mental illness, the emotional discovery of the truth about the unique history of our childhood. In order to become whole, we must try in a long process to discover our own personal truth, a truth that may cause pain before giving us a new sphere of freedom. The damage done to us during our childhood cannot be undone since we cannot change anything in our past. We can, however, change ourselves. We can repair ourselves and gain our lost integrity by choosing to look more closely at the knowledge that is stored inside our bodies and bringing this knowledge closer to our awareness. We become free by transforming ourselves from unaware victims of the past into responsible individuals in the present who are aware of our past and are thus able to live with it. Now, to be fair, I mm. condensed like the first three pages down into that paragraph. There's a lot of ellipses on my page here, but... That was super, super powerful. Yeah. A very powerful condensation. Thank you. Um, that's what, that's my nickname when I sweat. Um, she says <laughs> that this repression of violence at the beginning of our lives begets acts of violence as adults. And she says that even doing things in the name of patriotism or religious beliefs can show up this way. And I thought that was really interesting, especially at the time we're at right now. Oh, is that because it's, it's, um, it's an acceptable outlet to express those things that you don't otherwise know how to express? Yeah, basically like violence perpetrated on you as a child must come out as violence until you resolve it. And Holy shit. if you've, if you've found a way in your mind to wrap around that it was your parent, somehow r religion and patriotism is like a, a substitute for a parent. Wow. It's really interesting. Whoa. So we should timestamp. This is June 15th. So that's where we are right now. Mm -hmm. And if we talk about things happening in our country and you're listening to this a decade from now and we're no longer a country, you know why. Okay. Um, <laughs> We've just dissolved. Yes. She says that repressed pain may lead to all kinds of addictions or the need for constant achievement. And that really, I really related to that. I felt like the overachiever um, growing up. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, then there was my 10 year old hair, uh, heroin addiction as a 10 year old. Just kidding. That didn't happen. Okay. Yeah. There, there's that. And also I, I'm completely fine. And also my trophy's bigger than your trophy. Thank you. <laughs> That's a euphemism. Just saying um, as a therapist, she said, <laughs> still true, still true, <laughs> still true. She said she was quote, quite often faced with people who were praised and admired for their talents and achievements while they grew up. So while they did well in life, maybe ex excelled in everything they tried and they could be envied and admired, but behind all this lurked depression, feelings of emptiness and self-alienation and that their life had no meaning. And so she says, mm. quote, in the very first interview, they will let the listener know that they have had understanding parents or at least one such. And if they are aware of having been misunderstood as children, they feel that the fault lay with them and with their inability to express themselves appropriately. Mm. And I relate to this. It's very Midwestern to never blame your family. So like I always said, like, well, I was a very extroverted and emotional child and the rest of my family was not. And so I kind of let them off the hook. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Yeah. So mm-hmm. I completely relate to that. The problem is with these pa- patients, she says, is they can't understand their childhood emotional world. They lack any emotional understanding or real awareness of the instabilities they may have experienced and absolutely no comprehension of their true needs outside the need for success and achievement. So Mm -hmm. she gives some general assumptions. She says the child has a primary need from the very beginning of life to be regarded and respected as the person she really is at any given time. What this means is emotions, sensations, and their expression from the first day onward, they are a person, there is a person who is completely aware of them and takes them seriously. And she says, if they're, if the child's parents receive this, they can give it. If not, the parents will seek it from anyone, including their own child. And they will continue to do this for the rest of their life until they do the work to heal. Oh my. And she says, look, this search can never be fully completed or succeeded, of course, because it's in the past. And as long as it's unconscious or repressed, you ain't going to fix it. She says the most successful objects for substitute gratification are a parent's own children because the newborn is so dependent on the parent, it will do everything it can to not lose them. Oh, this makes my stomach hurt. Yeah. So then she talks for a little while about how this relates to why people become psychotherapists. Long story short, patients depend on their therapists and it repeats the cycle. Does that make sense? Oh, and she's saying that's why people become psychotherapists. If they have this childhood trauma and if they haven't worked it out on their own, it's kind of, as I understood it, it was kind of repeating that. I've always wondered that. I've always wondered how many people in, you know, pursuing like a master's degree in psychology or psychotherapy, those different fields, if they are there just because they want the help themselves and they want to better understand themselves or if they're really there to help other people. I mean, I think everybody has childhood trauma to some degree, right? And I wouldn't say that every psychotherapist is seeking to resolve that, but she does make this point that some people do, right? Well, it's kind kind of the same. It reminds me of acting class. Mm -hmm. Some people just kind of pursue acting because they want a place where they can be heard and validated Mm -hmm. and they sort of treat it like therapy and my, you know, in my experience. And sometimes I look at them and I think you don't have to fight this uphill battle life as an actor. You could just go to group therapy. therapy. Exactly. So here's an example of what a patient might experience in their work. She says the patient is surprised by her feelings. She would rather not have recognized, but now it's too late. This is after she started to uncover this stuff. There is no going back. Now the once intimidated and silenced child can experience herself in a way she never had thought uh, before thought possible. And afterwards, she can enjoy the relief of having taken the risk and been true to herself. Whereas she had previously never made demands herself and had always been tireless in fulfilling the demands of others, now she is suddenly furious that her therapist is again going on vacation, or she is annoyed to see other people waiting outside the consulting room. What can this be? Surely not jealousy. That is an emotion she does not know. At first, it will be mortifying to see that she is not always good, understanding, tolerant, controlled, and above all, without needs, for those have been the basis of her self-respect. These feelings, joined with the pain of being unable to understand what is going on, which is part of the earliest period of childhood, are consciously experienced for the first time during therapy. And I can attest to that. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. So it's it's kind of like you this emotional cycle and these learning moments have to complete themselves and they will complete themselves whenever they it's first possible to do so. Yeah, either you complete them unconsciously in a repressed manner or you complete them 
as you become aware of them and learn how to manage them and move past them. Wow. Okay. Uh, Section two, depression and grandiosity, two related forms of denial. And here was some bleak shit for me, at least. (laughs) She said, "Every, (laughs) uh every child has a legitimate need to be noticed, understood, taken seriously and respected by his mother or primary caregiver. In the first weeks and months of life, he needs to have the mother at his disposal, must be able to avail himself of her and be mirrored by her, provided that the mother is really looking at the unique, small, helpless being and not projecting her own expectations, fears, and plans for the child. In that case, the child would not find himself in his mother's face, but rather the mother's own projections. This child would remain without a mirror and for the rest of his life would be seeking this mirror in vain. And I said, damn. In the first few weeks. Yeah. It just. That's so soon. I know. It's like, you know, I feel like I have a lot of friends who had children early and a lot of friends who had children later in life. And the friends who had children early said I wasn't a good parent as they got older. (laughs) And the friends who had children later in life said I was a better parent, but I was absolutely exhausted and couldn't do all the things I wanted to do with them. So what do you do? When's the perfect time? Well, I don't know. But here's what Alice Miller would say for healthy development. She says, if the child is lucky enough to grow up with a mirror, with a caretaker who allows themselves to be the function of the child's development, then the child will grow up with the, quote, unquestioned certainty that the feelings and needs of one experiences are part of oneself. And that isn't something to be discovered, but it's like a pulse. If it functions normally, you don't notice it's there. She says, this automatic contact with one's own emotions and needs gives an individual strength and self-esteem. Yes, that reminds me of Gloria Gloria Steinem book, Revolution from Within. There's this core self-esteem and then there's this, I forget the term that she uses, but this external self-esteem, which is just as I, core self-esteem is like, as I am, I'm perfectly worthy. Yes. And then if, but if you have learned that you can only derive your self-esteem from external sources, that's where that high achievement comes in. Yeah. So I think Gloria Steinem was coming at it from like a cultural and societal viewpoint. And Alice Miller mm-hmm. is coming at it from like a family, like a microcosm viewpoint. Mm-hmm. So if a caretaker isn't able to give this and worse yet is still in need of this themselves, the short answer, Miller views this relationship as now exploitative and the child cannot experience their own feelings and emotions and instead develops what the primary caretaker needs. And she says, while this certainly saves his life at the time, it may nevertheless prevent him throughout his life from being himself. And that shit is bleak. Look, I know we turned our videos off for Wi-Fi purposes, but my jaw is on the fucking floor. Now, granted, this is one woman's perspective. No, but it's also... I, it also makes sense. It's I my it also ma- it's scary because it rings true. So she spends a lot of time in this section of the book talking about grandiosity being the flip side of the same coin as depression. It was interesting, but to get into it, I would need to spend a lot of time on it. So if that interests you, please read the book. Instead... And can you just really quickly yeah. tell us what she means by grandiosity? Grandiosity? When you're talking about narcissism, you know, when people have a grandiose view of themselves. Okay, great. So instead, I'm going to share something that I related to in the book. And for anyone who is in therapy or has been or is curious about going, she talks about different depressive phases during therapy that I was like, this is spot on. The first type is called signal function. A patient arrives complaining of depression and leaves crying or having cried and feels better. Maybe they needed to express pent-up rage or express mistrust or vent anger. 
It doesn't matter which feelings are coming up. The important thing is they can be experienced. She says the depression was a signal of both their proximity and their denial. So they were close to the feelings and denying them and they needed therapy to let them out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a that's a a special move of mine. It's a a favorite move. The second type of um, depressive phase during therapy is suppression of essential needs. A patient has a good session, feels like they got to the core of something, really understood. And then a day or two later, they would distract themselves with something unimportant that would make them feel lonely or inadequate again. This could be recreating something that happened as a child. Um, and she gives this example, say, whenever they would get into their true self, maybe through creative play, the parent would ask them to do something, quote, more sense sensible and their inner world would be closed off to them. So if, as the adult, they allow themselves to face this and work with it, they can feel the old rage, rebel against the way they were treated, and find the repressed need. And the depression will disappear because the the defensive function is no longer needed. So if you leave your therapy session and you're like, I really feel like I got close to something, the old pattern is to distract yourself with something else. As opposed to just staying in that, that awakening? Yes. So if they face it and work with it, they can feel the rage, rebel against the way they were treated and find the repressed need. So the third type of depressive phase. But how how do you practice asking for a friend practice? Yeah. How how do you stay in uh, an epiphany? Because I feel like life also just gets in the way. Well, I think you would go back the next week. You would talk about what happened. You would talk about how you got upset about a friend's text or an email and how you know, and then you could talk with your therapist about, we had this, you know, experience last week. And then hopefully your therapist could relate that to how you were treated growing up, the discoveries that you had made and how this was repeating that pattern. And then just over practice, you're building up a muscle of how to tolerate that and choose a different path. Wow. Okay. I mean, I don't know. I've, I've heard, you know, like, I mean, that's just like something yeah. I've heard, but I wouldn't know. Yeah. Like your friend, your friend told you that so that I could tell my friend who was asking right. the question. No, we are both fine. honest about our therapy. But yeah, it's like the old, like, I walk down the street, there's a hole, I fall in the hole, right? So like over time, your cues, you'll become aware of your cues, like we talked about in Atomic Habits by James Clear, you'll become aware of your mm-hmm. cues and you'll be able to make a different choice. Great. Great. So the third type of depressive phase during therapy is accumulation of strong hidden feelings. She says depression can last a few weeks before the strong emotions from childhood break through, almost as if the depression held back the effect. And she says when this emotion is experienced, insight and associations related often follow, sometimes in their dreams, which is super fun. We're all having very vivid dreams right now. So many vivid dreams. Weird ones, you guys. Yeah. The last uh, depressive phase during therapy is confronting the parents. So after a person... Oh, no, no, no. I unsubscribe. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Goodbye. So after a person has resisted the demands of their parents, they may experience depressive moods. This could be trying a new way of doing something in your personal life and hearing the old voice of how you should do something come up. And then you'll get to talk about that with your therapist and talk about how, what that triggered in you, you know, how you, how you reacted, et cetera, et cetera. She says, the true opposite of depression is neither gaiety nor absence of pain, but vitality, the freedom to experience spontaneous feelings that are a part of the kaleidoscope of life. And these feelings are not only happy, beautiful, or good, but can reflect the entire range of human experience, including envy, jealousy, rage, disgust, greed, despair, and grief. But this freedom cannot be achieved if its childhood roots are cut off. 
Our access to the true self is possible only when we no longer have to be afraid of the intense emotional world of early childhood. Once we have experienced and become familiar with this world, it is no longer strange and threatening. We no longer need to keep it hidden behind the prison walls of illusion. We know, we now know who and what caused our pain, and it is exactly this knowledge that gives us freedom at last from the old pain. Wow. Whose book does that remind you? Vitality. The upside of your dark side. That's exactly what I thought. And how it's, and how it's like, it sounds like at our best, humans are designed to experience emotions from beginning to end, whatever that may be, and let them flow through us and out of us, right? They're like not meant to be locked away inside and repressed and held. Like, I don't think we're containers. I think we're conduits. Yeah. So the last section, uh, part three, the vicious cycle of contempt and misty. Again, it's June 5th. It's what I feel. That's the tagline for our friendship. (laughs) You're welcome. I love it so much. (laughs) Okay. Misty. As I was reading this third section of the book, I was really moved because it was totally relevant to what's happening right now. Mm. So she says, many adults first become aware of their feelings of helplessness, jealousy, and loneliness throughout their own children since they had no chance to acknowledge and experience these feelings consciously in childhood. So in this section, she really starts to get into how victimized people victimize others. She says, we can't simply decide not to pass it on. We can only become free of it, she argues, when we can fully feel and acknowledge the pain and suffering that that others inflicted on us as children. So the example she gave was like, if little girls receive additional discrimination because they're female, then as mothers, these former little girls pass on the disrespect they received. A son will idolize his mother who disrespects him, but despise other women. And the daughter will revenge herself on her own children one day. Oh my God. Quote, disrespect is the weapon of the weak and a defense against one's own despised and unwanted feelings, which could trigger memories of events in one's repressed history. And the fountainhead of all contempt, all discrimination is the more or less conscious, uncontrolled and covert exercise of power over the child by the adult. Mm. I was like, oh yeah, it makes sense. And she said, it. Um, she talks about how unfair it is that children are property and how parents treat them and the fact that how parents treat their children is their own business. And as a society, we stay out of it until it's desperate. She says, but think yes. about it. In, yeah, you're right. Yeah, she's like, in 20 years time, these children will be adults who will, who will be compelled to pay it back to their own children or to others. And she says, but the distinction is that adults know when they are hurting someone, but not necessarily why. And until we take seriously mm-hmm. the rights of children, the cycle will repeat. Yes. And she gives this advice. Oh my God. I know, right? She says, when your older children tell you about how you hurt them, she says, this is an opportunity. Apologize. Acknowledge so they may throw off the chains of neglect. And there are so many examples in this part of the book from real patients, lots of discussion about abuse, sexual abuse, and how that plays out as an adult, and how therapists are part of this equation, how childhood neglect shows up in artist's work as adults. She takes very famous artists and look at the work that they produce and then traces it back to their childhoods. Um, but she eventually gets, oh, wow. yeah, she eventually gets into how this impacts society. 
She says the person who has worked through their own tragedy will recognize another's suffering more clearly. She will not be scornful of others' feelings, whatever their nature, because she takes her own feelings seriously and knows how to work with them. She surely will not keep the vicious circle of contempt turning. So basically, Mm. you can't struggle successfully against hatred outside yourself if you're ignoring the messages within. She says, consciously experiencing our legitimate emotions is liberating. It frees you of lies and illusions, but illegitimate hatred never disappears. A person who can honestly and without self-deception deal with his feelings has no need to disguise them with the help of ideologies. And that made me think about what's happening right now. Oh my God. And, um... That's it. That, my friend, is the drama of a gifted child. Wow. Way to leave us on a <laughs> fucking firework, Lisa. Well, I just think it was really interesting. It was another way of, as we're talking uh, large conversations about defunding the police and investing in community, childcare, healthcare, mm-hmm. community services. To me, I was like, this isn't a great um, reason why is that people need to learn how to sit, tolerate, and deal with their emotions and their experiences so that they don't take it out on other people. Right. And it reminds me, I think, again, to invoke Gloria Steinem, I don't know if she was the first one to say this, but the personal is political. And I know this isn't how it was, this next statement was intended, but it's that whole think globally, act locally idea of like, these, it does matter how we treat each individual child for how that effect is going to ripple through society Yeah, in 20 years, yeah, 30 years, 50 years. Yeah. Wow. This, um, Lisa, what a, uh, short, <laughs> short, potent, powerful dose of, uh, knowledge bombing that you just did for all of us. I'm violent, but efficient. (laughs) That it's a short book. It's a short summary. I need to lie down. (laughs) (laughs) That shit's bleak. That shit's bleak, y'all. That shit's bleak. And you know, my mom listens to every episode. What up, mom? Listen, Karen Karen? did a great job. And the the bottom line, I think what she's saying is, I don't think any parent can be perfect. Do you know what I mean? Can I, I was literally talking about this with someone last night. I said, yes, I'm not kidding. And it was, it was like within the last uh, 20 hours because it was late. But I basically said like, I hesitate to have kids because does anybody actually come out of childhood unscathed? I've never heard anyone go, yeah, my parents were amazing. Like, I don't have any problems. I think a few people probably do. But I've always said, ultimately, you are the the result of the best your parents could do. And your parents fuck you up in their own special way. Nobody else is going to have the fuck up that you do because you grew up in a home with your unique parents. But also, isn't that a beautiful right of privilege that we get to experience on this planet, you know? 30 generations ago, they were just trying to survive. (laughs) And now we're like, but when you didn't pick me up after school, it really set my whole life on a different plane. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's I'm going to invoke Maslow's hierarchy of yes. needs here yes. where it's like you can only have self-reflection many, many steps after your basic needs have been met. So like the fact that you and I can even have a self-help podcast where we're getting as meta as talking about childhood yes. means we're doing okay well, as a society. But uh do I have any homework from this book, Lisa? Girl, no. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, my God. I had such a knot in my stomach worried about what you were going to give me. Did this book need to be written? I think it did. I think it was really, it turned the institution of psychology and uh, uh, psychoanalysis on its head at the time. Mm. And I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, as we're seeing right now, the structures that are built to protect those in power invariably need to be restructured. And so I, I like that. I, I think she needed to write it. What did she get right? And what did she get wrong? She obviously got right that it was for psychotherapists and having them re-examine if they had dealt with their childhood feelings and also kind of helping people understand that this was imperative that they do so. I think what she got wrong, you know, it is very bleak. It does not really, you know, it's kind of like if and only if your caretaker is able to do this. I don't know any woman who's just gone through birth or anybody who's just adopted a baby and is trying to get to know them. And, you know, I I don't know a single person who is able to be this kind of, you know, ideal. Yeah. You know, I think you're going to fuck up your kid because you're human. So that is like a very high expectation put on parents. Yeah. And there, it seems like there's a lot of pressure in the first few weeks. And also let's not forget sleep deprivation makes every, it it can, it can make the, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of really only sleeping a couple hours a night for three or four days in a row, but it, it makes the world feel hopeless, you know, and you're not your best self. My best friend brought her daughter Scout out to visit me um, when she was six months old. She, Sarah made a very loving and intentional effort to make me a part of Scout's life. And for that, I am forever grateful. And I spent Mm -hmm. time with Scout when she was very young and, and continued. But, you know, part of that meant Sarah came out without her husband. And so I was the other parent. So for a full, you know, like 10 days, two weeks, we, I was getting mm. up doing the 2 a.m. feed. I was, you know what I mean? So yeah, by day 10, I was kind of losing my mind. And Sarah was like, oh, you need a nap, you know? And it, it gave me a great appreciation for what new parents go through. Um, and also great affirmation as to like, why I am not having children. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I've never pulled an all-nighter. It's not for everybody. My body literally at some point when I'm too tired revolts, I start to vomit. Um, and I have to lie mm-hmm. down. Like my body doesn't do it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but not everybody meant to be a parent. Amen to that, sister. Who's this book perfect for and who's it terrible for? Perfect for therapists, perfect for people who need the affirmation and validation that it's okay to not like your childhood. It's okay to have had a great childhood and also still be uh, traumatized by it. Um, I think it's terrible for people who don't like women in power. Uh, (laughs) um, I think it's terrible for people who don't believe that feelings are real, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And here's, here's my own little ad lib question. Do you feel like knowing what we know and as somebody who has so much experience with therapy, 
Do you feel like all of this information still holds up? I do to some extent, right? Because I feel like emotional intelligence specifically and the conversations around that and the language around that has really evolved so much in the last 10 years, let alone, you know, 20 since the original book was published. Yeah. And I think obviously it wasn't, it, again, it wasn't written for the layperson. So I mm-hmm. think in that instance, like it was just very validating for me. And I know why my therapist recommended it, it was because like it was really a good Midwestern girl. It's really hard for me to admit that my parents may have <laughs> not given me what I needed. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. especially coming from like a very privileged background, it seems not right to do so. So I, I think I, that's a really great question. I, I don't know how to answer that um, because there's a lot of clinical settings in here, you know, and like talking about, um, I guess I just think it was so fascinating how she went from like the individual and then blew it out to the societal level that I think mm-hmm. that kind of overshadowed everything for me. And I was kind of like, this is as relevant today as it was years ago and thinking about where she came from and what her upbringing must have been like the connection mm. she made I, I think it makes sense right and and something i thought a couple of times uh throughout this book review was this idea that i think because so it here i'll speak from my own experience it took me so long to realize that maybe there was some dysfunction in my like wider family at large Mm -hmm. as an adult because everything that happened in my family just seemed normal to me Mm -hmm. because that, that was normal. Mm -hmm. That was my normal, you know? So even, even just the way, like maybe my aunts and uncles argued with each other or whatever, you know, I just always thought, Oh no, I had a perfectly normal wonderful experience in my family. And it wasn't until later, and don't get me wrong, my family is amazing. I love them. But it it wasn't until later that I just kind of went, oh, huh, maybe it wasn't as like streamlined as I thought it was. And I think a lot of us, because we don't have often, we don't have another baseline unless we really are, you know, get close with a friend's family and stay over there a lot and see some of the more intimate workings of that, you know? Yeah. So sometimes it can be really hard to, it's like she was saying, these giant blind spots in our own experiences. Yeah, man. Yeah. Thank you so much for that (laughs) upsetting and potent and... (laughs) You're welcome. And very fascinating (laughs) book review. (laughs) I think we should let everyone off the hook and just say, may your self-reflection be... Abundant. Abundant. Goodbye. Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less, was produced by Misty Stinnett, Lisa Linky, and Matt Sav. Our theme song was also written by Matt Sav. He's amazing. <laughs> do you want to get in touch? You do. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And you know, you can also find us on the social medias, Instagram at gohelpyourselfpodcast, Twitter at podcast, or check out our website, gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes to help other people discover our show. It's really the least you can do. And why don't you tell all of your friends? Bye! Bye.